This conference will now be recorded. And hello and welcome to what is likely our final uh, session of uh, 2021, yay. Uh, this is the third limited jurisdiction update. We had an awful lot of both statutes, rules, and administrative orders this year. It has taken a lot to unpack them. Uh, so um, it, it's taken three sessions. I'm joined once again uh, with Judge Huberman, who is our presiding judge and still the reigning uh, JP of the year for several years now. Uh, and uh, we will go ahead and get going. Uh, please mute your microphone if you're not uh, actively asking a question. So um, what we're going to do is first we're, we're going to talk about a couple things that we haven't previously discussed, and then we'll talk about the major changes that are already in effect and some of the major changes that are coming soon, and by soon I mean January 1. So this is part three. This is not intended to be the whole year. Uh, to get the whole year, you are going to need to watch part one. And these are hot links. You'll need to watch part two. And for the case law review, um, you should listen to uh, Judge Jim Blake's or watch Judge Jim Blake's case law review. Uh, those are all available on YouTube. They're all available as podcasts and all of the materials are in Hightail. And we'll start with our breaking news, Judge Huberman. So, yeah, you know, of all the years that I've been doing this as a judge, I do not remember any year that has had so many updates um, with rules and legislation and uh, so many things to, to, to hold in our heads. I guess it's good that we've kind of split it up this way um, in different uh, presentations so it's not overwhelming uh, to remember everything, but there is a lot of information um to to remember um some things that have gone into effect already this year and some that will be starting next year um so one of the things that the legislation that went into effect on september 29 uh was that well i guess it has nothing to do with this right though um, on november 29th uh mbd send out a notice or a memorandum indicating that they realized um, that between December of 2020 and March of this year, they had not sent to the customers notices of suspension, revocations, and cancellations. They did, when they realized the mistake, send out the notices in March of 21, um, there are many people that were impacted by this error. The MBD worked closely with the county attorneys or with the prosecuting offices, um, mostly to deal with people who had been impacted by this with felonies. Um, so we do not have a list of anyone who was impacted by this. You know, of course, as soon as I read this, you know, in my mind, I went back to all the people who we asked, you know, was your license suspended 
on this day, did you know it was suspended? And they were like, I didn't get the letter. And, you know, maybe we, we insist, are you sure you didn't move? Are you sure you didn't get it and don't remember? Uh, turns out maybe they didn't get it. Um, but um, just something to be aware of that, that, that we do know that there was an error in this and, and hopefully it has been fixed. But it might have affected uh, folks in our, on our side on the, with the misdemeanors. As for the license suspensions, um, the, that is the new law that went into effect on September 29th. Uh, we can no longer suspend a license for non-payment of civil fines. Uh, this does include uh, CDL uh, licenses and juveniles. Um, and then there is no longer, uh, also there's still mandatory fines, but those mandatory fines now can be mitigated, uh, which means that if there is a hardship and the judge makes a finding as to uh, the defendant's inability to pay, uh, that mandatory fine may be reduced, uh, except for DUI fines. DUI fines um, cannot be uh, mitigated. And I don't know, do I hear about insurance? The, the point I want to make about insurance is, because I did have a judge say, well, does that mean that I can just go ahead and mitigate an insurance violation uh, without get, getting their motor vehicle record. And well, yes, you can, but if you don't get the motor vehicle record, then you cannot not suspend their driver's license. So if, uh, if you don't want to suspend their driver's license, they still need to do the six months of insurance and uh, their motor vehicle record. Uh, right, and, and, then, and the, the non-suspension is just for non-payment of fines. It has nothing to do with other suspensions. Uh, that, that 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 may be required in suspensions uh, by the MVD. So what happened when this new law went into effect? Our understanding initially, and we might have said this in other update classes, uh, was that the MVD was going to automatically reinstate all the licenses of those persons whose drivers uh, whose license had been suspended. But it turns out that because of the way the statutes and the, the language in the statutes, uh, what ended up happening was that all licenses that were suspended for failures to pay, uh, which is the code 55, were reinstated automatically. The customer needed to do nothing. Those licenses should be showing as reinstated. But the people who had their license suspended for failure to appear for a traffic uh, case, those licenses also uh, are no longer suspended. But uh, any, any license that was suspended prior to January of 2019, those were not automatically unsuspended. So, I think that the issue is going to be that a lot of people who heard the news and heard that the MVD was automatically uh, lifting the suspensions might be under the assumption that their license was uh, reinstated. But if they were a code 58 prior to January 1st, 
they have not been lifted, which means that they need an abstract from the court uh, showing that they appeared in court, and then they can take that to the MBD and the MBD can, can then lift the suspension. I think it will depend on each judge how they want to handle, um, what are they going to do, if they're just going to give them the abstract without requiring payment, or they're going to require a payment for the abstract. Um, just bear in mind that the statute does say that there's no longer a license suspension for failure to appear or for failure to pay, um, and that if they do appear in court uh, and they're asking for their abstract, um, that is that they're wanting to get their license reinstated. And then um, we had, um, I don't remember when, when it happened. Uh, there was a, one or two years ago uh, when, the, when the surcharge percentage changed, uh, the, there was a reduction in the surcharges added to the fines, but then there were some additional uh, assessments that were added. And at some point, we thought that some of those assessments couldn't be waived. Um, and then we um, then we said that they could be waived. And now it appears again that a lot of them are telling us they can't be waived. Uh, and so we are have to like redo the, the well, this we call it the matrix, uh, which are the fines or which are the assessments that can be waived and which ones cannot be waived. Um, so there has been some change to that. One of them, you all might remember, there was the, 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 the was it the Clean Elections Fund? No, something for the victims. Uh, there was a $9 charge and a $2 charge, which originally wasn't supposed to be suspended. Then we were allowed to waive it. Now it appears it can't be waived again. So we are working on a new uh, how low can you go chart and we'll have the information on which items can be, um, what can be mitigated, what can't be mitigated. It, remember that all fines can be mitigated now, even if they're mandatory fines, except for DUIs. But there are some parts of them that cannot be mitigated and you'll see there were some assessments uh, that can be mitigated. Uh, so, so you'll you'll just have to kind of pay attention to that. We are working with the folks in the, on the operations team uh, to make it so that when these fines are input into ISIS, uh, that the clerks can uh, catch if there is uh, something that's being uh, input that's that's not um, authorized by law, and then they they they, they could let the judge know that if they waive something that should not have been waived. You wanted to add something, Charles? Just that if you are gonna mitigate a, a fine, particularly a mandatory fine, you do need to make a finding on the record that it's financially appropriate. All right, and so um, we're gonna talk about rules and legislation at this point. Again, the general effective date had been September 29. 
Most rules are effective January 1. There were some rules that went into effect on September 29 if they were emergency rules. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about um, jury peremptory challenges. Uh, and in, in, on our past update, we talked about how the jury peremptory challenges had gone away for uh, criminal and for superior court civil, and they forgot and left out evictions and uh, justice court. Well, they did a follow-up uh, adoption, uh, a follow-up um, order that went ahead and struck the jury peremptory challenges for us as well. Uh, if you do have the joy of doing a jury trial before the end of the year, there's still one peremptory per side uh, through the new administrative order, uh, and that's AO 2021-187. And that actually came out yesterday. I, I had finalized this presentation several times yesterday, and, and when we say there's a lot of late-breaking stuff, um, we're talking about late-breaking as of yesterday. Uh, the the Supreme Court did another rules meeting last week, and and um, that impacted us here as well. So, uh, the, you, know, you really do need to stay on top of your emails, and, and we're going to do what we can to keep you on top of that. One of the things that the Supreme Court did last week was they adopted a, a new Rule 18.5b for jury strike changes. Uh, and that is because with the elimination of the peremptory challenge, uh, strikes for cause are, are going to be more prevalent and uh, they're going to be more intense. You're, you're going to see more of them because attorneys and parties no longer have the ability to, to have a mulligan, to go ahead and strike somebody without giving a reason. Now they're going to need to have you as the judge find a reason to remove this juror. Uh, so the first change was for um, explanation of voir dire. Uh, at the beginning of any written or oral examination, the court must explain the purpose of voir dire, how the court and the parties will use the prospective juror's information, and who may have access to the information prospective jurors provide. And at least that the last part of that um, rule is new. It's not in part of any of my script or any script I've seen where we say, and by the way, uh, this is why we're using this information and this is who will have access to it. And then the big, the big, big change is the comment uh, rule 18.5 F. When feasible, the court should permit liberal and comprehensive examination by the parties, refrain from imposing inflexible time limits, and use open-ended questions that elicit prospective jurors' views narratively. The court should refrain from attempting to rehabilitate prospective jurors by asking leading conclusory questions that encourage prospective jurors to affirm that they can set aside their opinions and neutrally apply the law. This is a sea change because we've all been trained as part of voir dire to say to the juror, uh, even though your nephew is, is a law enforcement officer in Nebraska, uh, can you still apply the law and the, and the facts um, to this case and render a fair and impartial decision? And, um, you know, we've been trained to do that, and now we don't do that. The attorneys can still do that, and, and now it's going to be the attorney's job to basically ask those questions to, uh, to try to rehabilitate 
a juror they want to keep, but we are not to do that any longer. Uh, we are going to have, we're, we're planning, I know the AOC is planning some sessions on uh, motions to strike. We will also have a session uh, probably in February or March on, uh, on the new world of juror strikes as well. All right, this next one uh, got left off of the first two updates. Uh, so uh, there is a new mandatory penalty for street racing. Uh, that's violations of 28708. Uh, and there's now a new class two misdemeanor for aiding or abetting street racing. Uh, and for those of you who, um, for your criminal arraignments, uh, obstructing the highway got reclassified. And unfortunately, the classification doesn't make any sense. You will need to have a cheat sheet for uh, when obstructing a highway is a class one, two, or three. And I've updated the cheat sheets. They're in the back of your packet, and we'll go through the cheat sheets at the end of the presentation. And again, uh, this didn't make it into the first two updates, but there is a new misdemeanor of doxing. That is by posting personally identifying inf information with the intent to harass. It has its own definition of harassment and, and it identifies personal identifying information. Uh, this, this was new to me and, um, and I, I did recently have somebody refer to doxing. I, I just really hadn't heard that before. And doxing is without the person's consent and for the purpose of imminently causing the person unwanted physical contact, injury, or harassment. That should be by a third party. Use an electronic communication device to electronically distribute, publish, email, hyperlink, or make available for downloading the person's personal identifying information, including a digital image of the person and the use does in fact incite or produce the, that unwanted physical contact, injury, or harassment. This paragraph also applies to a person who intends to terrify, intimidate, threaten, or harass an immediate family member. So that, that is a new crime. And then um, reminder, these have all gone into effect as of September 29 or earlier. Uh, remember, peremptory changes of judge uh, are no longer allowed or uh, are currently not allowed under the current administrative order. Again, that administrative order was updated yesterday, and it, the only change in the entire administrative order was to paragraph I-4 on the peremptory change of judge. And um, it is for all cases, for cases filed or remanded on or after November 17, um, some courts no longer will have the ability, uh, or, or attorneys in those cases will have the ability to do peremptory changes of judge. The long and short of this for Maricopa County, just the only the only justice courts where there can be a change of judge is the Pima County Consolidated Courts. And that is because they are not considered a single judge court. Because they're consolidated, um, there are eight judges there. And so um, they can be struck for as a peremptory. Um, every other justice court is considered a one-judge court, and so there is no ability to change a judge for uh, as a right, period. Uh, and if you're in a municipal court with less than three magistrates, there is no right to strike the judge. 
And then in of those superior courts that I've listed, there's still no right to a change of judge. So in Maricopa Superior Court, there would be a right to a change of judge. Again, that's only for cases filed or remanded on or after November 17. Uh, so by and large, for the most part, there's still no change of judge. Um, and, and this is just important to keep in mind. Now they can make request changes of judge for a cause, and those uh, requests should go to our uh, presiding judge, Judge Huberman, to, to make that initial uh, determination as to whether or not, um, or, or how to proceed in that case. All right, the community restitution rate, you've seen this before, but just want to remind everyone, because this, this is a big change, uh, the rate it does change based upon the state minimum wage rounded up and the current minimum wage is $12.15. That will change on January 1st, but it's supposed to change still to less than $13. So the rate should not change in 2022. It's probably still gonna be $13. If it does change, I will let you know, uh, which means I, I need to make a note to check again on January 2. <laughs> but um, it's gonna probably stay $13. And also please remember for civil traffic, the statute does say the defendant must agree and the court shall determine a location for the community restitution. Uh, and we do suggest that you state that that place or that location shall be a nonprofit uh, in Arizona. All right, Judge Huberman. Yeah, I think we've said it before, just refrain from from giving a specific agency or a specific place that you want them to do community service. Um, so the, the, the eviction action virtual appearance, uh, there was, there's a, the statute changed. Um, it went into effect on uh, September 29th. Uh, that says that, uh, well, this is the language uh, they said that any party, including an attorney or witness, upon written notice to the court, shall be permitted to participate in the initial appearance remotely by using a telephone or video conference connection. And then if it is continued to a different day, it is at the discretion of the court if they uh, want to require the parties, attorneys and witnesses to appear in person. So to conform to that legislative change, uh, the, the the rules were updated uh, for uh, evictions. Uh, rule five, which is probably three pages long at this point, has been amended for the last several years every year. Um, it includes uh, that the summons now is to include the court fax number and email and the website. Um, and then 582, uh, requires that the summons include that the landlord, tenant, or attorney, or witness may participate in the initial hearing through telephone or video by contacting the court for directions at least two hours before the hearing. Uh, the the legislation did say that they had to uh, request it in writing before the hearing. Uh, at the suggestion of some judges, uh, it was decided that it'd be two hours before the hearing uh, this this is the minimum requirement that if they request it two hours before the hearing and in writing, um, 
by statute, uh, they must be allowed to appear virtually. This is not to say that if they do not request it in writing or they request it with less than two hours, you can still authorize them to appear virtually. So there's nothing here that says that they uh, that they can't appear virtually unless they requested in writing two hours before. And then uh, um, the, the rule six was amended to add that the courts should permit uh, anyone to submit the notice, which is this written notice that they have to submit two hours before, and they can submit that by email, by fax, by phone, or any other electronic process. Um, and the court does not require an original signature. Um, so this is uh, not to be used as some kind of uh, litmus test that if you know you you don't come in person or you don't um, send in the motion in the form of a motion with an original signature, it won't be considered. The, this, this rule makes that clear. Uh, and then again, that if they didn't give the notice, the court could still allow them to appear. Um, and then Rule 11 um, requires that the courts must uh, allow everyone to appear remotely, which means that they have to have access, uh, give access to the litigants to some way for remote appearances. And I, I just want to interject that um, I've heard secondhand that there are some rural courts that are not allowing the initial appearance to be virtual. Uh, that is inappropriate. There's both a statute and a rule that says the court is required to allow that first appearance to be virtual. Uh, all right, and then as to the crime that we're changing our convictions, as to uh, injunctions against harassment, the definition of harassment has now been expanded uh, to include any contact. So it doesn't have to be a pattern of harassment, just any contact. If the person is a victim of a specified list of crimes that are uh, included in the statute, um, whether it be a completed or a preparatory offense, and that would be a dangerous offense, a serious offense, or a violent or aggravated felony, and any of the offenses that are listed um, in Chapter 14, uh, which would be the sex offenses. And so the rules to conform to this um, legislative change uh, just uh, indicate that when it says crime, it means a conviction for an offense. So it's not just the person coming in saying he assaulted me. Uh, it has to be a, there has to be a a, a conviction. And that is, I don't know what the other there are there there are other conforming changes in the rules that I guess are not specified in in this slide. And they, they weren't really uh, um, important. Okay. <laughs> we won't tell them that we think the true changes aren't important. Um, so uh, this is just the update to your chart, correct? Yes. 
All right, so if you want uh, to, it's your chart, I'll let you go ahead and say that. So this this just shows that I went ahead and changed uh, the chart, uh, and, and that is in the back of your packet as well, uh, to show that there's now three different ways to qualify for an injunction against harassment. It, it's, we can no longer say that you need a series of acts because it can be one act if it's one of the other two provisions here. All right, so uh, terminating probation, and this this is the other end of, uh, or the other side of that same bill on expanding the definition of, of uh, harassment. And what this says is when you're terminating probation, if you do have a victim, you are going to need to determine before <clears throat> you terminate probation early, whether the victim does need an injunction against harassment. So that is why the definition was changed because, well, what if there was only one act of harassment, there wasn't a series of acts. Um, so this is another of the you know, warning, if you're gonna put someone on probation, now if you're gonna terminate it early, you gotta keep this in mind. And uh, added on the cheat sheets to your list of uh, matters that you can dismiss at arraignment is a registration violation. This was added in the budget bill uh, that you do, um, you can't dismiss a registration violation if the defendant has obtained registration. This is a change because in the past, the law was you're required to have it at all times. And so even if you get it later, um, that doesn't fix it. Now it's fixed. And the statute also specifies that if the defendant is not the owner of the vehicle, you can suspend the fine. You do not dismiss it. It is a code 10. Code 10 is your friend. Code 10 means that they're responsible, but they don't have a fine. And then I have the however note. I said this was part of a budget bill. And keep in mind that Judge Catherine Cooper, a Maricopa County Superior Court judge, had before her several non-budget items in budget bills. And um, she went ahead and uh, declared that those were improper. Uh, and on November 2nd, the Supreme Court, interestingly, unanimous, unanimously affirmed her decision, but did not adopt the trial court's reasoning in its entirety. Uh, we haven't yet had the full decision uh, to, to see what parts they did adopt and what parts they did not adopt. Um, why that's interesting is in one of the other budget bills that was not challenged, um, ARS 12-109 was amended to prevent the Supreme Court from adopting rules and administrative orders which abridge, enlarge, or modify statutory, contractual, or common law real property rights or questions of substantive law. And I would suggest that that would seemingly be declared invalid based upon the same reasoning if that were to be challenged in court. Uh, it's, it wasn't budget related and it was in a budget bill. All right, so this is just to take note that the the language um, in 702.01a has changed for criminal speeding. Um, it used to say that it was over 85 miles an hour anywhere. Uh, now it only says exceeding speed by 20 miles per hour. Um, I know there's at least one judge on here who does have a 75 mile an hour stretch of freeway 
um, in the precinct, which means that now 85 is no longer uh, automatically criminal in that area because it wouldn't be 20 miles over the posted limit. Um, the language in the in the um, in in the in in the that in, in the computer system when they're issuing the tickets um, is being updated. Uh, definitely, the the tickets that are handwritten, you're still getting the old language on them. Um, if it's at an 85 and you're in a 65 zone, that works. I think if it says 85 and you're not in a 65 zone. Um, you're going to have to question that. And then the, the speeding with the finite resources, that didn't change. Uh, we already talked about this last time, the calculating DUI incarceration credit. Um, it, it says that a person who receives time served credit towards a mandatory term of incarceration must serve at least eight consecutive hours for each day of credit. Um, in general, this uh, we we think is just for people getting credit, not for uh, jail time when we are sending someone to self-surrender. Uh, but I personally am revisiting uh, my considerations of what time I allow people to self-surrender uh, because the jail is processing people out as soon as midnight hits. Uh, so if you let someone self-surrender at 10 p.m., uh, they could be in as, as little as two or three hours. Uh, I think that, you know, just send someone to the jail for two or three hours kind of defeats the purpose of the day in jail. Um, I, I will not be allowing people to self-surrender uh, before 6 p.m. That's just my decision on my court. And if you wanted to be sure that it's the full eight hours, then obviously you would do it, you know, at 4 p.m. Uh, knowing that they are processing folks out at midnight. Um, the statute also in a, was in effect on September 29th that all criminal offenses now qualify for a set aside. You have a question, Ken? Uh, yeah, and I was, gonna, I was just going to comment on that. I thought we had agreed, and I know I changed my hours to 6 p.m. to make that the, you know, minimum time that I allow people are the to be self-surrender right I mean I, totally, I, yeah I, what I what I think is the statute may only apply to when we're giving them credit for the time that they did uh prior like if they were arrested by the police okay. the time that the offense was committed and then they're asking for that time to be credited as part of their day in jail the statute is clear that that has to okay, be. Okay, I see what you're saying. I, I think we were talking about what time we want self-surrender for the average. Well, what I'm saying is that the statute is clear that the people who are getting to get credit have to have been in custody for at least eight hours. And so I think that it makes sense to extrapolate that to people who are going to do the, the, the time after that they should also do a minimum of eight hours. Got it. But that's not necessarily in the language of the law. Okay, I misunderstood. I'm sorry. I was doing two things. I was multitasking. <laughs> uh, and then all criminal offenses now qualify for set-asides. Um, it used to be that you could set aside a DUI, but not a criminal speeding. Um, you could set aside a reckless driving, but not an aggressive driving. Um, all that has changed. 
um, they all qualify for set-asides. Um, so just uh, as part of the, the soliloquy of the, of the change of plea proceeding, there is that uh, explanation of uh, the set aside. You need to you need to explain that it, it's. I, it, I think it's in the rules also um, that they have to be uh, put on notice. If any of you read like a script before arraignments or something, that would be a good place where to insert the, the information uh, to let them know for the set aside. Uh, although the the conviction can be set aside. They will always still count as priors. Uh, there's new legislative changes this year that a lot of the things that before uh, were considered priors now maybe like racing um, would would a second offense for racing has can be a felony. A second offense for reckless driving becomes a class one misdemeanor. So now there are more uh, offenses that that can be used as priors. So that is important also to notate that even if they are set aside. They still count as prior and are still subject to ADOP penalty. Uh, and then the, the 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 statute also indicates that if the court grants the set aside, it says that the court is required to include a certificate of second chance if the person has not previously received a certificate. Um, this, this obviously it was a problem the way uh, this this is written and it, it does lend itself to some uh, confusion. Uh, is it you know mandatory to give a certificate of second chance because it said that the court is required, uh, but how do we know that the person hasn't received a previous uh, certificate? And then the other problem becomes. Uh, you know, do they want to get a, a certificate of second chance on a speeding ticket? Because once they get that certificate of second chance, then they would never uh, be eligible for such a certificate uh, for a classic felony, for example, in the future. Um, so this is just all things to take into account. Uh, maybe just let the person know. Um, if they wanted, you know, for the misdemeanor. The thing is that the certificate of check and chance is supposed to uh, release the person from any barriers to obtaining licenses or uh, it, it has to do with employer liability. Um, so those things, uh, I mean, I would suggest that the person who gets, who comes in before you and wants a certificate of second chance probably isn't thinking and in the future that you might need another one and will probably want it, but just things to consider. And we are going to go ahead and change the form to ask, have you received a certi certificate of second chance previously? I mean, I think the, the state still needs to uh, give input. So hopefully if there was if, if the, the state would have more information than us, uh, if there has already been a certificate of second chance and would let us know also. All right, and I don't know how often we're gonna see this. One of the reasons that, that I put this back in there is if you recall from previous sessions, 
uh, the issue was uh, the, the legislature gets a lot of bills at the same time and they don't all interact with each other. And so there were actually two different bills that added ARS section 13-2910.10. Uh, so in this instance, um, this was one of the 2910.10s because a different bill already added a 2910.10. They made this 2910.11. Uh, but this does forbid animal ownership for certain offenses. Uh, so if you're in a court where you do get those um, animal cruelty cases, uh, you're, you're going to be forbidding animal ownership. Uh, the defendant can apply. Uh, you must hold a hearing within 60 days if they do uh, apply. The defendant does have the burden of proof. And if the defendant's wife has her her, you know, little uh, Bichon Frise or whatever, and they still want to keep their pet, um, then the defendant can request an exception because it's the wife's pet. So again, I don't know how often we'll see these, but that is something that was added into the statutes. Something that we probably will see a lot more frequently than the animal hearings is small claims judgment assignment. And in this uh, instance, the prevailing party in a small claims action is authorized to assign a monetary judgment to another person that is licensed in Arizona to collect debts. That person may appear in the small claims court as the prevailing party only for the purpose of enforcing the judgment. Uh, person that is assigned a judgment for collection does not represent the prevailing party, but is treated by the justice courts as the prevailing party for all actions that relate to enforcing the judgment. So this, in effect, um, allows the unauthorized practice of law uh, in that um, it, it can be assigned to uh, non-attorneys to go ahead and try to collect those judgments. Uh, so that that is just a heads up. So juvenile representation, are we, uh, we've been talking about this for a long time and I know that some of you who are, are judges here um, heard this conversation today over the lunch hour. Um, there, there is a, a statute change that requires the court to appoint an attorney for all juvenile delinquencies it says before the first hearing. Um, the the issue um, is that um, it, it is it, at some point we thought that this was not going to be uh, applied in the justice courts, uh, that it would only be for uh, petitions filed in the juvenile court. Uh, we've been going back and forth over the interpretation of this um, and and how how to apply it. Um, so there will be new rules that go into effect on July first. Uh, maybe this will become a non-issue at that time, uh, or that they will. Uh, change the legislation and correct it so we avoid these issues. 
Um, right now, at least, you know, and I'm not, I know that all of us don't agree on this. And I, uh, I, I think what, what's important is that if the juvenile waives their right to have an attorney, this is no longer an issue. But I would suggest that that only works if the juvenile waives their right to have an attorney and we in the justice courts hear the case as a juvenile hearing officer. So as a juvenile hearing officer, we can um, we can give diversion and we can resolve the case and you know give whatever uh, penalty or we want for the juvenile and then eventually dismiss the charge uh, without having to go through the county attorney. So if the juvenile waives the right to an attorney and we hear the case as the juvenile hearing officer, uh, I don't think this becomes a problem. I, I know for a fact that the county attorney's office, uh, if they get a case sent to them uh, because it was set uh, for, a, for a conference with the county attorney, they will be requesting a public defender be appointed. Uh, so I also talked to the public defender's office and they believe that they should be appointed. So we believe that if they are appointed, they'll accept that appointment. They won't try to uh, withdraw or, or try to get out of it. Um, but again, that clearly means um, that uh, the attorney is not going to be there at the time of the arraignment. And so whether the attorney has been appointed or you're going to appoint it, um, because the, 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 the statute does say that it has to be appointed before the first hearing. Um, regardless, the attorney is not going to be there and the juvenile would have to come back on a different day to speak to the attorney. Um, so uh, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to that, Charles? Yes, the, uh, on this slide, uh, the rules that go into effect on July 1st, 2022, say that the waiver must be following a colloquy, a colloquy with the judge, however you pronounce that. Um, so you can't just throw the form, the waiver form at them, have them sign it. You actually have to have a discussion with them and say, do you understand you have the right to be represented by an attorney and you want to waive that right? So make sure that you're actually doing that. And then just keep in mind that these are for delinquencies, not for incorrigible offenses. And we'll go back to Juvenile 101. The difference between a delinquency and an incorrigible is would it be a, an offense for a, an adult? Uh, and so a truancy would, would, um, would be an incorrigible, not a delinquency, a tobacco violation would be an incorrigible offense, not a delinquency. Uh, so if it's a Title 28, it is going to be a delinquency, uh, but um, a curfew violation, tobacco. Uh, ironically, an alcohol offense is still going to be a delinquency, uh, but but the other ones that I indicated are not. And then and, I, and civil traffic, don't forget that civil traffic is excluded from the juvenile rule. So a juvenile who's charged with civil traffic 
um, is is treated just like an adult. You you follow the civil traffic rules. All right, so coming soon, uh, this is what we get to look forward to coming January 1. So um, we do get legal paraprofessionals in limited jurisdiction courts, uh, and I don't know if we have any. <laughs> uh, some of us, uh, including uh, Judges Huberman and Driggs, worked on the tests for legal paraprofessionals. Um, they were actually pretty hard tests. I, I thought they were open book. They're, they're closed book tests. Uh, so if we actually have any, um, they can appear. Uh, and they can appear in criminal case, they can appear in the civil cases, not in small claims court, but in the civil cases in justice court, and they can appear in events. They cannot appear in criminal matters where jail time uh, is uh, an issue, so you won't be seeing them on DUIs. And um, for those of you who do initial appearances and release conditions, uh, they're, they're still trying to, under fair justice, um, not impose bonds that don't need to be imposed. So you, the court does need to determine that additional conditions of release are reasonably necessary to, to assure the defendant's appearance or protect the victim. Telephonic arraignments, uh, the, one of the weird things about the rules of criminal procedure is that they allowed, they specifically allowed for audiovisual arraignments, but did not allow specifically for telephonic arraignments. The Supreme Court did loosen the, that rule during the pandemic to, uh, to allow for telephonic arraignments. And uh, Judge Henninger is on the call and he submitted the rule change petition and now it's, now it's specifically allowed to do telephonic arraignments, so yay. And this one is going to give uh, us a substantial agita uh, at, for protective order hearings at a contested hearing. If a plaintiff seeks to testify or present evidence about relevant allegations that were not included in the petition, the court must allow the plaintiff to amend the petition in writing on a form provided by the court, a copy of which the court must immediately provide to the defendant and then offer the defendant the option of a continuance, a brief recess, or an opportunity to waive them and proceed. Uh, if, I mean, gone are the, and this is the way it used to be. It, it went back the other way because there were court decisions that said this violates due process. The defendant wasn't prepared to proceed against those allegations, and it was coercive to have the defendant waive that objection and proceed that day that this goes contrary to that and um, and now does put the pressure on the defendant to either come back, take another day off of work and come back on another day or go ahead and proceed. Uh, what was even more concerning is, is there's nothing in the rule that says that was a time limit. Uh, and so even after an ex parte petition was uh, served, uh, the, the plaintiff possibly can amend to allege allegations that would be the criminal act of, of uh, violating an order of protection. Uh, luckily, the Supreme Court issued its form, and the form specifically says that any event that you add must be before you applied for the protective order. Uh, so that does at least protect 
the defendant from uh, having to defend himself against the crime of violating an order of protection. Uh, so please keep that in mind. We do have the forms. Uh, it's I'm not exactly sure how it's going to work if you're doing a contested hearing telephonically uh, or virtually. Uh, if it's virtual, I guess we'll just have to email the form to the plaintiff. Uh, but we are required to allow them to amend the petition to allow uh, new allegations uh, that arise before the date that they applied for the protective order. And children on petitions, we've talked about this before, but this does be, uh, go into effect on January 1st. There's new rule 35F, if the defendant is a non-parent of a child, uh, the limited jurisdiction court can issue an ex parte protective order and, con and conduct any contested hearings. Uh, the remedy for the other party who believes it's interfering with parental rights is then to go to family court. The family court can um, yank that over to family court and, and uh, take care of it there. Uh, keep in mind, we do have a best practice on children as protected parties on injunctions, which basically says in that situation, you may just right off the bat, really want to look at it closely. And uh, if it looks like they're including children that are going to affect someone's parenting rights, that, that you strongly uh, look closely at whether or not you want to include the children on the petition, uh, tell the person that you'll proceed with them, but probably not include the children, uh, and encourage them to go to family court for their appropriate remedies. And then uh, there was a commission of uh, the Judicial Conduct Commission sent a warning uh, to a judge uh, who had reduced interest rates. And, um, and so we do have a best practice on interest rates. Please look closely at that. Look at ARS 44-1201. Uh, one of the other uh, weird things there is allegedly the the decision didn't get mailed out in time for the uh, for uh, the plaintiff to appeal. Um, that as a pro tem, that that's not something you can control. But for our judges, we do want to make sure that those get mailed out timely. All right. So any questions? If you have any questions, you can put them in the chat box. You can turn on your camera and turn on your microphone. We once again went through a lot of stuff. Uh, the materials are going to be are, are already in Hightail. Uh, I'm going to put this as a podcast and a webinar, uh, so it is going to be available if you want to go through it a little slower. Are there any questions? We're just that good. <laughs> We're just that good. <laughs> All right, uh, everyone have a, uh, we, you will be tested on this. We will, we will send out a test. Uh, everyone have a terrific holiday season. Uh, have a terrific Festivus, a wonderful new year, and we'll, we'll see you all next year. Thank you.